0: When I was about eight or nine, uh, I was frequently told that I looked like the character Ralphie from the cult classic A Christmas Story, Um, and I have to admit that those claims were uh, pretty accurate. I I had the same glasses, I had the same hair color, I had the same hairstyle, I had the same uh, round uh, round face, and, and I had the same lack of BB gun that Ralphie had. And one of the, the most memorable moments of the movie *A uh, Christmas Story, t- at least for me, is, is the moment where Ralphie is having this dream and in this in this dream, he, he he's saving his family uh, and their home from this troop of burglars that jump over the fence in the backyard. And, and these men, they're all dressed in jailbird uh, black and white stripes, and they're wearing these bandit masks. and And Ralphie is standing there, uh, looking like this cowboy with his with his BB gun, and he defends his property against these burglars uh, because he's he's got his he's finally got his Red Rider carbon action, 200 shot range model air rifle. And it's this moment where he just is in love with this idea of being able to protect his property. And as I was thinking of this sermon this morning, this topic, as we look at the, uh, continue our time through the the Ten Commandments, uh, this morning we're on the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment uh, is one that, that oftentimes, when we think of it, uh, that kind of picture comes to mind. Or we think of other movies, uh, movies like Home Alone, where Kevin uh, defends his his house and his, his home against these burglars, And and no matter how stereotypically dressed these criminals may be, creeping into the home to, to rob the family clean of all their possessions, uh, we think of that when we think of the, the uh, command not to, to steal. And we, we can look Look at that and say, hey, you know what? I'm actually pretty good on this one. I, I've never com- seriously contemplated burglary or, or armed robbery or, or grand larceny. I've I've never participated in a uh, oceans movie style type heist where I've robbed uh, a casino clean. And, and as we think of this, we can we can just step away and say, you know what, I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I, I've finally come to a command that I that I'm I'm doing okay in keeping. But as you may guess. The Eighth Commandment is is far more than just uh, not, it's not just about whether you're a part of Danny Ocean's band of of criminal masterminds. It's it's not just whether you are a shoplifter or someone who's uh, got a broken lawn gnome and sees your neighbor's lawn gnome and you want to steal it because you want a, a nice lawn gnome when no one's looking. Like the rest of the Ten Commandments, the heart of this command is ultimately concerned with your heart, with my heart, with our hearts. It is a command that forces us to ask questions about our integrity. It forces us to ask questions about our view of possessions, and, and ultimately, I think, it, asks, it forces us to ask questions about our relationship with God. You see, the, the Eighth Commandment forces us to wrestle with these questions, and this is a question that I want us to wrestle with as we, are, as we are looking at this this morning, a question I want you to have at the back of your mind during this time together. Am I someone who gives or someone who takes? If you were to look at the sum of my life, would someone say that I am a giver or I am a taker with my finances? with my relationships with others? Am I someone who gives? Do I pour out my heart to those people? Do I give more than I receive from others? Or am I someone who takes more than I give, who demands more than my fair share of the pie? At its core, this command is a a question forcing us to wrestle with, am I a giver or am I a taker? So here's what I want us to do this morning as we look at this command. Uh, like the other commands before it, this is a very short command. It's only four words long in English. And so as we examine this command, as we examine our hearts this morning, I want us to first do so by looking at the reasoning for this commandment. Why does God give us this commandment? And second, to look at the implications of this commandment. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. This command is found in verse 15. And as I mentioned, it's just four, uh, four short words long. Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. And so let's begin our time this morning with a word of prayer. Please pray with me. Lord, we, uh, we first thank you for your word. And we thank you that We have the opportunity to gather together with fellow believers to study that word. And as we explore this text this morning, God, uh, we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would be at work among us, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear this command for each and every one of us. And God, we ask that through your spirit, you would be at work enabling us to live in such a way that honors you, that glorifies you as we, as we seek to live a life in the freedom that's found in your commandments. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we explore these four words, you shall not steal, let's first consider uh, the, the reasoning behind this commandment. And after all, this is uh, a relatively uh, universal command. You look at uh, virtually any society throughout any uh age of human history, they will have some sort of command similar to this. Basic laws preventing theft, protecting uh, protecting private property. It's as close to a universal truth that we can find among human society. And yet, as as we look at this in Scripture, we have to ask, does the Bible give us any other special reason for this command? Does the Bible have anything else in mind beyond what we've just mentioned, the common sense, the the idea to prevent anarchy? And in a moment, we're going to look at two reasons that the Bible gives for this command that are found in Scripture. But, But briefly, I just want us to consider what the Bible actually means when it prohibits theft. So Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments, but Exodus 20 is followed by a number of other chapters that actually are God explaining or giving the implications of those Ten Commandments, going into depth about the specifics of what he actually means when he gives these Ten Commandments to Israel. And so it's in the exposition of these subsequent chapters, specifically Exodus chapter 22, that we see a good, healthy definition of theft. It says this, theft, in, uh, or, excuse me, it doesn't say this. This is just a summary that I can't remember if it was, uh, I don't remember the name of the person that um, came up with this summary, but theft involves taking anything that God has entrusted to someone else. Theft involves taking anything that God has entrusted to someone else. And so Exodus chapter 22 lists several implications, several different examples of what theft looks like in God's eyes that may not immediately come to mind to us or for us when we hear the word theft. And he gives examples, Exodus chapter 22, gives examples that include negligence, they include arson, they include manipulation, and and, uh, several others as well. Now this statement, this statement that theft is is something that uh, involves anything, taking something that, that God has entrusted to someone else, that statement is significant because it first recognizes that God is the one who bestows upon each and every one of us possessions whether they are great in number or small in number. And God is the one who bestows upon us possessions. And this is on display in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 24 begins with this. The, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Here, David is confessing that the entirety of the world, everything that has been created and everything that the world contains is God's possession. And that includes you and that includes me. And so from that point, it follows that everything you own doesn't ultimately belong to you, but has been entrusted to you by God. God is the ultimate owner of everything. And that statement, a statement that theft involves taking something that has been entrusted to someone else, it's also notable because it highlights the value that God places on other people. It highlights the value that God places on other people. Theft devalues others by taking what belongs to them. A right view of ownership, a right view of of possessions, however, recognizes the value of another person in God's eyes, and God's economy of stewardship, that God in his wisdom has entrusted one person with some things and another person with other things. And it is this high value that God places on uh, others That is really the first reason that we see in Scripture to the prohibition of theft. And that first reason is this. Theft is a sin against your neighbor. It is a sin against your neighbor. Contained in in this command to not steal is the recognition of private property. There is a recognition that that private property absolutely does exist. Exodus chapter 22, I mentioned earlier, is a a series of expositions of this commandment, and it's all built on the assumption of private property. It's all built on the assumption that while God is the ultimate owner of everything, we also are owners as well. How else could we make sense of these verses? Exodus chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it, shall, it came for its hiring fee. So you see, Scripture presupposes that we will be the possessors of things. Not the ultimate possessors, not the ultimate owners, but possessors of things. And it, and it doesn't, at the same time, it doesn't say that private property is the most important thing in the world. It doesn't say that private property is the ultimate thing for which we live. Scripture is equally clear, as we've already mentioned, that God is the ultimate owner and we are his stewards. This is abundantly clear in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, the possession of the land itself was temporary. It wasn't everlasting. It was not ultimate. God is speaking to Israel in Leviticus and he says this, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Another thought. In other nations, especially around this time, the crime of theft was oftentimes punished by death. But not in Israel. We see from the Old Testament that the command or the punishment for theft is, is not death, but it is instead restitution. It's significant. That while possessions are important in God's eyes, they're not to be held higher than the value of another person's life, no matter what they attempted to steal. This is clear from the beginning of Exodus chapter 22. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now notice what this text is saying. It presents two hypothetical situations for us. In the first, imagine it's the middle of the night and you're suddenly awoken by a crash coming out of your living room. You race into the living room and you're half asleep. You're you're confused and you you see someone stealing your TV. And in your panic, remember, you just woke up. And so you're not thinking clearly. In your panic and your worry for your family's safety, you shoot the thief. And according to Exodus chapter 22, verse two, it's an act of self-defense. But then there's another hypothetical situation in verse 3. It's the middle of the day. You're doing yard work in the backyard, and you hear this crash coming from inside your house. You go and investigate, and you see that someone is robbing you. But the text tells us you will be held liable for his death if you kill him during the day. It's not an act of self-defense, according to this text. If you have your wits about you in the middle of the day or even in the middle of the night, then you will be held liable. Now, these hypothetical situations aren't absolute. They're not meant to be exhaustive. Self-defense does happen during the day and uh, murder is possible in the middle of the night, but the important thing here from these hypothetical situations is for us to highlight. They show the value of private property, but of more value in God's eyes is human life, and that includes the life of the thief. Consider one other truth from Exodus chapter 22, revealed multiple times. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double, but if it is stolen... He shall make restitution to its owner. These are multiple different verses from Exodus 22, and in each of these verses, the punishment is listed. It's a form of restitution. It is making things right. Theft is a sin against neighbor and it is a damaging, relation, damaging the relationship between you and your neighbor. And so things must be made right through restitution, restoring the relationship. It's not some sort of, of um, idea that we're going to be best friends now, but it's a simple statement to make sure that things are made right. So let's imagine for a second that you are out to eat with a friend and while they are in the bathroom, uh, the food is brought to the table. You're trying to stay healthy and so you get a salad, but your friend's fries are on the table and my goodness, that is a temptation for you. They're sitting there, they're unwatched, they're unguarded, they're tempting you, they are begging you. You can hear those fries telling you, you need to eat me. And you resist for a moment, but then you cave and you snag a fry and then another and another and then a few more. Now, you think you've gotten away with it because you repositioned the food on your, or, uh, your friend's plate before they could return, uh, but unfortunately... You found out by the fact that the, the restaurant uses some of that salt with a really, really, really big cubes. Not, not normal salt, but, you know, the sea salt that has really big cubes. And there's some of that really, really big salt still stuck to the corners of your mouth. And your, your friend comes back, and they see your salad, and they realize there's not a lot of salt on that. And they look at their food, and they say, hey, have you eaten some of my fries? Now, you're overcome with guilt, and so you confess, and you say, I'm going to make this right to you. And the question is, how are you going to make it right? Are you going to give them some spinach leaves? (laughs) No one in their right mind is going to say that that is a fair trade. And so to restore this relationship, you need to give them fries. That's what you've stolen from him. You need to give them fries. However many you stole, plus more. It is a statement to your friend, I have wronged you. And in so doing, I have entered into your debt, but by paying more than what I took, my debt is now paid. Now now consider this from a couple different angles. One, it is a statement of wrongdoing as a statement of paying off debt. And it's an important thing from the perspective of the person who has been wronged. They have what has been restored to them and some. But also look at this from the perspective of the person who did the wrong. They are now. after paying more than what they took, they are actually able to say, my debt to you is paid. You cannot continue to hold this over my head. I have restored what I took from you. Those fries, as good as they were, I have restored them and some. My debt is paid. Theft is serious in God's eyes because it damages our relationship." with those that we are meant to live in relationship with. And because God so highly values those relationships, restitution is essential. It's essential to make things right. But scripture also reveals a second reason why theft matters in God's eyes. And it's not just that theft is a sin against your neighbor, but also theft is a sin against God. Remember our definition from earlier, theft is taking anything that God has entrusted into the hands of someone else. And so when we take something God has entrusted in the hands of someone else, at best, best case scenario, we are displaying a lack of trust in God's providence. We are displaying a lack of trust in God's provision for us by saying that God will not take care of me and so I am going to take care of myself. It's a lack of trust. It's a lack of faith. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, it is a statement that we, are, uh, we, we don't like the way God has set things up. We, we don't like the fact that God is Lord, that God has been the one who has sovereignly decided to uh, give people, uh, other people more than us. And so it is an arrogant statement that God is not Lord in our lives. So consider the masterpiece uh, Les Miserables. At its core, Les Miserables is a story of grace and law and how they intersect and how we respond to grace and law. And the story centers on the life of this man, Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is a, is a French criminal who is sentenced to nearly two decades of hard labor in prison because he has stolen a loaf of bread in order to, to feed his starving family. Now, later on in his life, Jean Valjean admits that he was wrong. What he did was wrong, but he did so because he was at the end of his rope. He was desperate. He had nowhere else to turn. And so he did this out of desperation in order to feed his family. And his theft, while wrong, was a display of a lack of trust that God is going to provide for him. It is a display of a lack of trust in God's provision and nothing beyond that. There wasn't any sort of arrogant defiance of God's plan. And so a proper punishment for his crime would have been a few hours of work, a few hours of labor, in addition to returning the bread for the baker or the vendor or whoever he stole from and nothing more. But of course, this man is given 17 years of hard labor. And after he is released from prison, Jean Valjean is understandably bitter. He's understandably pessimistic about life, and he is given a a night's shelter by a priest. And in this moment, Valjean takes advantage of the priest's hospitality, and he steals tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars from him in silver. And here his theft is for a different motive. On its surface, it looks like it's the exact same thing. It looks like he's trying to make a way for him to, uh, to provide for himself. And yet, this isn't just a, uh, an act of desperation. This isn't a, just an act of a lack of faith. Here, it is bitterness. Here, it is arrogance. It is a disregard for God's lordship and a determination to make himself lord of his life. Here, the punishment should be severe because his theft is a declaration that God is not God of my life, and yet, astonishingly, he is offered grace by the priest, and that transforms his life. You see, at its core, theft is primarily about your relationship with God. It is primarily about your relationship with God. At its best, in your most desperate moments, in the most desperate situations, it reveals a lack of trust in God's goodness. But more often than not is a declaration that God's way isn't good enough, that God's wisdom isn't wise enough, that we deserve to be on the throne and not God. And so we see the reasons for this command. It's a sin against neighbor, and it's a sin against God, but as we mentioned earlier, it would be wrong for us to conclude that this command only has in mind breaking and entering. In the early 1990s, a survey of Christians revealed 90% of Christians believe that they never have broken this commandment. And with such a narrow definition, if we were to limit the definition to just this, then that's probably not a wildly inaccurate statement. But remember, the heart of the law is primarily concerned with our heart our hearts. God is not just concerned with your actions, he's also concerned with the integrity of your heart when it comes to possessions. And so a definition that takes our heart's responsibility into account probably should be considered. Colin Smith is a pastor in the Chicago suburbs and he describes the intent of this commandment this way. He says this, stealing can be defined as the desire to get as much as possible while giving as little as possible. Consider that statement. Stealing can be defined as the desire to get as much as possible with, while giving as little as possible. And he follows that up with a, a very helpful illustration. He says this, It's helpful to think of each of the Ten Commandments as a railway track with many stations on the line. In the case of the Eighth Commandment, the line is called dishonesty. At the end, the last station on this line, you will find passengers who would gladly break into someone's home, steal their property, raid banks, run massive fraud schemes. Most people will never visit that station. Yet all of us have traveled somewhere on this line. If Smith is accurate to the intent of this command, and I I believe that he is, then indeed all of us are guilty uh, of traveling on this line, this line of dishonesty, this desire to get more while giving less. This desire to get as much as possible while giving as little as possible, even if we've never resorted to theft. In the 1930s and 40s, Norman Rockwell was a famous illustrator whose work was frequently featured on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. And let's go ahead and show that picture. One fall, he created this comical and yet startling startingly accurate uh, illustration of the small ways that we can have a tendency to break this commandment. So consider what's taking place in this photo. Uh, Both the butcher and the customer are watching the scale as she's getting ready to, to purchase her Thanksgiving Day turkey, and yet they both have this faint hint of a smile on their faces because both of them have a little secret. Notice what the woman is doing with her hand. She is slightly pushing up on the scale to try to save a few bucks on her turkey to make it weigh a little bit less than it actually weighs, but the butcher has his own little secret as well. And he is secretly pushing down on this scale to try to get a little bit more money out of this woman. It's, it's a slightly comical picture. It's, it's amusing and, and it shows you know how many ways we, will, we are committed to, to cut corners in order to get a little more uh, money in our hands. It's, it's funny, lighthearted. And yet when we look at this photo from the context of God's reasons for this commandment, we can realize that both the woman and the man are sinning against one another. They're destroying their relationship with one another. It's a relationship that God deeply cares about. Imagine what it would be like if the woman noticed what the butcher was doing. Or imagine what the butcher, how he would respond if he noticed what the woman was doing. This would be devastating for their relationship and the woman would probably never shop in that store again. The butcher would probably refuse service to this woman in the future. It would destroy their relationship, something that God deeply cares about. But it is also an act of defiance against God. It's a, it's a statement that his ways are not best, that each of them is the true sovereign, the true Lord of their lives, their minds, and their hearts. So with all these reasons, uh, we don't need to show that anymore. Thank you. With all these reasons, sin against neighbors, sin against God, we can see that there are multiple ways that we can break this commandment in our lives, that we are tempted to break this commandment. So let's consider a few. Uh, First, let's talk about fraud. Uh, That's a fun way to to just start. Uh, Fraud is the ability or the the desire to manipulate the facts, to conceal the truth, uh, to deceive those that we are interacting with in order to get ahead. And that's exactly what that picture that we just saw was an act of. It was breaking the, the Eighth Commandment through fraud. When Crystal and I purchased our home uh, several years ago, we were assured by the seller in in the home disclosure that the house had never had issues with water in the basement. And two weeks after we moved in, we met all of our neighbors because we decided to throw a pool party in our basement. All of our neighbors decided to join us to do damage control as we were scooping water out of our basement. It was a form of deception. It was a form of breaking the eighth commandment. It's not just illegal actions, too, where this comes into play, but immoral ones that are considered to be perfectly legal. It seems like with the uh, proliferation of the internet, reselling items has, has made a comeback, This idea of selling things through eBay or through Facebook swap sites is a good, healthy way to uh, get rid of of things or to to make a little bit of extra money. But we must avoid the temptation, especially if our things are used, to stage those items in just the right way so that way we are concealing the quality of what we are selling. Don't break the Eighth Commandment through fraud. This command, uh, more importantly, probably has implications for employees and employers, Paul spends a great deal of time in his letters encouraging Christians to work hard and to see their work as something that is valuable, no matter what their profession is. And so for the, Christian, uh, for the Christian employee, the Eighth Commandment has vast implications for us on how we work. The question that we ask should not be, what can I get away with? But instead, the question is, how can I add the greatest value to my employer? Time theft is one of the most common forms of theft today, stealing from your employer by wasting time through extended breaks or surfing the internet or being on your phone when you're called to work. A somewhat embarrassing example from my past. When I was in high school, I worked at the local fitness center in my hometown. My boss was a hard but fair man, and we got along really well. But as a city employee, he only worked Monday through Friday. And the facility was also open on the weekends. And it was well known amongst all the high schoolers that the best shift to work was the Saturday morning shift. It was the the shift when the, the pool wasn't yet open and there weren't many people that were actually using the facility. And it was actually commonplace and encouraged by our supervisor, not our boss, but our supervisor to actually bring in homework. Or bring in a book and sit at the desk, study, read, do whatever during your downtime on the shift. Now, one Saturday morning, I I, I nailed the jackpot. I was do, I got this shift. I was doing exactly that. I had, I completed my daily list of jobs, and I was uh, there wasn't anything pressing, and so I sat down with my Bible of all things and began to read. And at some point, I heard a very loud. <clears throat> Coming from the front desk. And I looked over and saw my boss standing there with a number of his out of town family members. They were coming to use the facility on his day off. And he didn't say anything beyond a simple, Is that a good book? Which was devastating and probably hurt more than if he would have addressed things directly. But I was breaking the Eighth Commandment. Even though everyone else was doing it, everyone else did it, even though I was encouraged by my supervisor, I knew there were things I could have been doing that I wasn't, no matter the status quo. A few years ago during the summer, uh, I worked for my father. Uh, he manages a, a regional water utility company uh, down in southwest Iowa. And during the summer, uh, on a college break, I was driving through the country from one site to another site. And on my route, I saw the truck of one of my co workers pulled over uh, near, near one of the um, sites that we were working at. So I pulled over to, to check on him and, and just to see if he needed any help. And I, I pulled over and, and was surprised that I didn't see him anyone outside. It's like, oh, we must just be making a call. Uh, in. In his truck. And I, and I looked over and, and he was asleep at the wheel. He was taking a nap on company time. This command is broken time and time again when we steal time and do what we want at work. It is also broken when we avoid the tasks that we have been charged to do that we don't like in our job, but we focus on only the things that we like. Here's another thing that's, and I hope, I hope this comes out the right way. For Christians, we must even be cautious when it comes to sharing our faith at work. Our employers don't pay us to share the gospel. And while there is a time and a place to share the gospel, absolutely there is, as a natural part of the rhythm of your vocation, we must never do so as a a substitute or at the sacrifice of what we are called to accomplish in our jobs. We are called to work well, and God is honored when we work well, not when we compromise our good work in order to share the gospel. This command also has implications for employers. Old Testament law went to great lengths to make sure that the wealthy landowners wouldn't take advantage of their hired laborers. The book of James actually condemns those in the church that wouldn't pay their employees a fair wage. It says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, apparently there were some in the church that were taking advantage of the economic situation and the plight of others. And it's unclear when, Paul, when James here at the very end mentions murder, if he's actually speaking about murder or if, uh, or if he's, he's using this as an illustration of what they're actually accomplishing. And, and I think based off of the context, it, it's safe to say that by breaking the eighth commandment, By taking advantage of those that worked for them, by refusing to pay them a fair wage, this was the equivalent in God's eyes to murdering their employees. It's extremely sobering words. In order to honor God and keep the eighth commandment, employers should not ask the question what is the minimum value I can get, or that I can get away with paying these people? This question is, is not even, how can I get the most out of them without, with how much I am paying them, squeezing them, every last ounce out of them. The question Christian employers must ask in light of this command is, what is the value of my workers? And to pay them accordingly. Of course, this doesn't just stop with the ethical treatment of employees either. It also spills into the treatment of customers. The Old Testament is again filled with examples and warnings against this idea of having false sets of weights or in in other words, to have one set of weights that weigh a lot and one set of weights that weigh very little in order to buy things at a low price and then sell them at a high price. It says this in Deuteronomy 25. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Before there were standardized forms of of measuring weights, this is how people would would measure things. They would say, you know what, this rock is, uh, you know, worth so much money. And then they would pull out a smaller rock and say, oh, by the way, this rock is the exact same weight as this rock, and so make sure you do, or you you benefit me in what I am trading you. Now, translated into today, those who set market prices should be very, very cautious to solely, notice, notice that we can continue, I'm saying solely follow the economic principles of supply and demand. One can think of Jesus's actions in cleansing the temple, Of money changers. In that example, one of the reasons that Jesus cleanses the temple is because these people were taking advantage of worshipers in need. They were charging exorbitant prices beyond what they were supposed to charge. Martin Luther, addressing how to faithfully follow God in our vocation, says this The Christian cobbler has a special duty to make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. We must remember it is as not the sole, solely the winds of economic theory, but a commitment to justice, a commitment to fairness as espoused in the scriptures that should set prices, that should set interest rates, and on and on, not to take advantage of others. The totality of this commandment points to the importance of us having a mindset of stewardship with our lives, a mindset that remembers that we are not the ultimate owners of the things that we possess, but rather that we've been entrusted with those things by God. The calling of stewardship means that we should be faithful, means that we should be wise in our use of our finances, making sure that we honor God with the things that we have been entrusted with, that we are not robbing God as unfaithful stewards. It's significant that Paul, as he's talking about the idea of stealing, this idea of theft, uh, he gives us one final implication for this commandment. Found in, in Paul's words to uh, the church in Ephesus. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. According to the Bible, what is the opposite of theft? According to this passage, what is the opposite of theft? It's generosity. If we are truly to keep this eighth commandment, it is not enough for us to not steal. It's not enough for us to not manipulate. It's not enough for us to not defraud others. It's also to be generous with what God has entrusted to each and every one of us. It is to live a life that does not look on how we can get without giving, but instead to live a life that gives freely, even without getting. Philip Ryken, uh, a theologian, quotes Jerry Bridges, another theologian, describing the contrast here between the mindset of a thief and the mindset of a generous steward. He writes this, Jerry Bridges has often observed that there are three basic attitudes we can take toward possessions. The first says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. This is the attitude of a thief. The second says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And since we are selfish by nature, this is the attitude that most people have most of the time. The third attitude, the godly attitude, says what's mine is God's. I will share it. This contrast is is powerfully displayed in Acts 4 and Acts 5. Many of us are familiar with Acts 5. Acts 5 tells us the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this couple that sell their property, and they bring a significant portion of the proceeds to the church, and they say, we're going to give this to the church but they kept some of it back for themselves. And, and that would have been fine in its own right. But the issue here in Acts chapter 5, it's very clear that they were breaking the eighth commandment. They were lying about how generous they were actually being, and they were deceiving the church about their giving. The result may surprise us, but uh, they're actually put to death because of their actions. It's a sober moment. It's a a serious moment for the early church, a a moment where they realize that this God is not to be trifled with, that we cannot lie to this God, but it's made all the more powerful by what takes place just a few verses before, juxtaposed against the end of Acts chapter four. Acts four contains two verses I wanna look at. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see the difference here between these two examples. In Acts chapter four, we have Joseph, or we have Barnabas who gives generously, who, who considers his wealth, not his, but the church. What, what matters not is the size of the gift, but the heart behind the gift. For Barnabas, this gift is the first in a long line of actions that display faithfulness as a steward of God's calling. But for Ananias and Sapphira, they were made an example of before the entire church. They were an example reminding the church that God is holy, that God is still committed to the Ten Commandments, even after the cross. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is what is the focus of this command? As we draw to a close, what is the focus of this command? And I think the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias seen in Acts chapter four and five Serve as a perfect example of what this text is trying to tell us, and that is this Theft dethrones God, but generosity glorifies God. Theft dethrones God, but generosity glorifies God. And so as we close, ask yourself Am I a giver or am I a taker? Am I someone who gives? Not, not just to the church, I'm not, I'm not focusing on, on tithing and, and offerings right now. Am I someone who gives? in every area of my life, not just financially, but just with my time, with my resources, with my energy, with my relationships? Am I someone who gives, who lives as God has called me to, as a steward of everything that God has given to me? Or am I someone who takes, someone who is fi- primarily focused on what I can get out of things, what I can get out of church, what I can get out of relationships, what I can get out of circumstances, get out of situations, and not on my responsibilities to God and to his kingdom? I think for many of us here this morning, the answer is probably mixed. We have a desire to be generous. We have a desire to be someone who gives more than we receive. But we have a hard time trusting in God. We have a hard time trusting in God when the bills are coming. We don't know where the money is going to come from. We have a hard time not being filled with envy when we see all of the toys that our neighbors or coworkers have. We have a hard time trusting God. We want to be good stewards, but all too often we can lose sight of that calling and think more of ourselves and what we don't have instead of what we have. You see the good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross. In Luke, the gospel of Luke, it it tells us that Jesus was hung on the cross between two thieves, four thieves, for thieves like you, for thieves like me. And as Jesus said to one of those thieves on that day, he offers him eternal life. As he leaves behind his way and he sends the exact same offer to us today, Luke chapter 23, and he said to them, "'Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.'" Theft is not the unforgivable sin. Theft is not the unforgivable sin. Remember the Ten Commandments. They're not a way for us to earn God's favor, for us to work up to God's status, but they're instead a response to what God has already done for us. Breaking this commandment doesn't mean that we have to do more good, doesn't mean that we have to give more in order to make up for it in God's eyes. It is instead a reminder for us to look to the one who was hung among thieves for you and me, to look to the cross and to live a life of gratitude, a life of stewardship and response. Theft dethrones God, generosity glorifies God. Which path will you follow? Let's pray. Lord, as we think of this command, uh, we can think of the ways that um, we have broken it, not just by um, stealing, but oftentimes by not being generous with our resources, not being generous with our time, not being generous to those that are around us. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and ask that you would help us to have eyes to see and a heart to do what you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.